Well, good morning. It is a privilege to be able to bring the word of God to you this morning. So have you ever watched a master craftsman? Maybe you've seen a a, a jazz band improvise and you're just like, wow, how in the world can they do that? Or perhaps you've seen a professional NBA basketball player just shoot basket after basket, swish, swish, swish. Um, How did they become a master of their craft? More than likely, it was by being trained by, learning from, watching somebody who was already a master, or putting countless hours of effort through trial and error to become that master. Well, the way people do this is and should be similar to how we follow Jesus. I'll explain that today. We're going to see that following Jesus means living as a citizen of heaven, And to do this, we follow tried and true spiritual values and practices to keep us rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, which some people have termed this as a rule of life. So today I'm going to be talking about a rule of life. Now we're in a series called Tree Spirituality, and we talk about how the life of a disciple is like a tree. The roots are our identity as sons and daughters of God. The trunk is our servant's heart, the servant's heart of Christ in us. The branches and leaf represent our unique calling or mission from God. The fruit of the true disciple of Christ is a life that follows Jesus by loving God, loving others, and making disciples. And the soil that they need is God's presence in the church through the Holy Spirit. Today, what we're going to see is the nutrients in the soil, right? You need nutrients, and they are models that show us how to follow Jesus. And from them, we're going to learn to live by a new set of practices, spiritual practices called a rule of life. So if you think about this, in your life, you will work hard at something you care about. Am I right? But somehow in Christianity, it sort of like just falls out. It's like, oh, it's just going to, it just happens. So do we take time to work diligently at becoming deeper connected with Christ. That is what we're going to talk about. The background for this, before I read it, of Philippians chapter 3, the whole background of the epistle actually was a letter that was written by Paul, a super joyous letter, expressing his love, expressing his gratitude, and exhorting them, really, to live in unity and live in holiness and also in joy, but doing so as they are grounded and rooted in Jesus Christ. And so up to this point in the epistle, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to follow the pattern found in the life of Jesus. He wants us to center our thoughts and our actions upon Christ. So in this part of chapter 3, Paul tells us why we should pursue nothing but Christ. And what is the best way to go about pursuing Jesus Christ? Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, verse 21. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, and he's talking about the resurrection of the dead, but I press on to make it my own 
because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The grass withers and the flowers, they fade, but the word of our God is forever. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to challenge us, to convict us, but to enliven us and to let us see Jesus Christ in all of his glory so that it animates us to live our lives in such a way that his glory is manifested and reflected in our lives. Lord, we don't do this perfectly, and so we need your help. We don't do this sometimes even barely, and so we need your spirit to open up our minds and our hearts today and change us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first point that we have today is found in verses 12 to 16. And this is where we see that Christ is so much of so much value to us that we should strive for the righteousness of Christ. So today, first, we're going to see in verses 12 to 16 that we should strive for the righteousness of Christ. So in verse 12, Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians know that he is just like them. He has not arrived He isn't perfect. No one is until in Christ we attain the resurrection of the dead. And so we must live in the tension, in attention of the already, but not yet. The already is that you are truly united to Jesus Christ and have never been more alive in your spirit than you are today. That's the already. But the not yet is, is is that we have not been glorified. We have not seen the face of Jesus Christ. And so right now we have remaining and indwelling sin. And so because of this, we need to wrap ourselves in our unity with Jesus Christ. Like a blanket, you need to cover yourself with your union in Christ. You have to keep your minds, we have to keep our minds fixed upon the righteousness that qualifies you and I to partake in the resurrection to come, the righteousness of Christ. We must constantly remember, as it says in verse 12, that we are Jesus's. You and I, in Christ, belong to him. You have been bought with a price. You are his. Then in verse 13, Paul looks at himself, and I think he sees right now that he's a mess. You see this in Romans, 
where Paul says, I don't do the things that I want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. And so he's just like us. Don't put Paul in some super hyper-spiritual thing in your mind. He was a sinner just like you and I. He needed Jesus. And his letters, speaking of the union of Christ, just show you that Paul said, I've got to wrap up in the blanket of Christ in everything. And that's why he's like, union with Christ, union with Christ, union with Christ. That's all he talks about for the most part, is that we are united to Christ. And so um, he doesn't have perfection in the present, except in promise and in legal status. So he's perfect in promise, right, in Christ, and he's perfect in legal status. The gavel has landed in the courtroom and declared that he is perfect and righteous in Christ. And so Essentially, he now knows as a broken person that he still must work with all his might in order to live as if Christ is his only prize and Christ is the only thing of value. You see, Paul sees the idea of living in the past, right? You, you, you and I, we can think about our past a lot, right? And you can actually be hamstrung by it. You can be burdened by it. But he sees the past as a roadblock to the moving to the future. He says that he leaves what's behind and he strains forward to the upward call, that prize that is ahead. And so what we see in verses 14 to 16 is that Christ is the prize that Paul, that you and I should want more than anything else. Christ is the prize. What lies ahead? What's the goal that Paul talks about? It is the prize of God's upward call in Christ. So they said, well, what is the upward call? The upward call could perhaps be this reality that the prize of heaven, right? What's upward call? Oh, it's heaven, perhaps living forever with God, but I think that the prize is Christ himself. I think that's what Paul's getting at. Christ is what he strains for. Christ is all he wants. So Paul presses on toward the ultimate prize of being with and having Jesus Christ forever. Having Jesus forever. What does this mean but that we are to keep Christ central in all of our goals, in all of our desires, in all of our actions. We must keep our eyes on the prize like you are running a race. You look to the finish line. You don't, you know, can you imagine running your race and just being gazing at the audience, right? You know what I would do? I would do this and I would hit the wall. Because you generally go, like riding a motorcycle, right? What do you do? Do you look to the side on a motorcycle? No. Otherwise, you'll wreck, right? And so the reality is, is that we keep our eyes fixed ahead of us on Jesus Christ. But since we haven't arrived, though, we're not there yet. How do we press on? We press on with an understanding that we are still a work in progress. You ever seen those under construction signs? Like, that's you and me. If we don't walk around as if we have the orange barrels all around us, we're in the wrong place. We've missed the whole point of Jesus saying, come to me, you are weary and heavy laden, right? Because we are a work in progress. Because of this, we must always work hard at keeping Christ before us. And because of this, we 
essentially, well, we do this, I should say, by seeing examples and by following examples. Paul says, I'm an example, and I want you to follow other people who are following me as I'm following Christ, and they are following me being that example. I want you to follow that example. And so we need to do things in our lives that help us to keep the main thing, the main thing, to keep Jesus Christ before us always, Christ as supreme and above all. But let's move to our second point in verses 17 to 21. What we see here is that we must follow the pattern of those who pursue Christ. You must follow the pattern of those who pursue Christ. But how do you do that? By avoiding the anti-pattern, right? It, you know, if you want to go learn how to be the best golfer in the world, let's say, you probably don't want to spend hours and hours watching people who can't hit a ball off the tee, right? You don't want to watch me to learn how to play basketball. The middle schoolers learned this when they saw how I couldn't barely make a basket unless the basket was about this high. And then I could do it because I could actually reach in and put it there, right? This is the reality is is that we must not follow the anti-pattern. So what is this anti-pattern? Paul asked them to follow as a disciple of Christ, but watching out for the the complete opposite, the anti-pattern. The anti-pattern is destruction, selfishness, shame, and empty-mindedness. Destruction, selfishness, shame, and an earthly mindedness, which is emptiness. See, these people that are following this pattern are the farthest thing from disciples of Christ. Paul says they are enemies of the cross, right? The people who are earthly minded, the people who gloat and glory in shame, the people who are selfish, the people who are heading towards destruction are those enemies of the cross. And Paul spoke about them earlier in verse 2 of this chapter. He calls them dogs, unclean, evildoers. He calls them those who mutilate the flesh. And what these are is people who put confidence in the flesh and bring others into bondage, bondage to the works of the law, legalists. But they also, I think, can be people who draw us into the sinful lusts of the flesh. Anti-law people. Antinomians is what they're called. These people live for destruction. Those who live for themselves have a pretty scary destination. God's people are citizens of heaven, whereas the citizens are people, these people are citizens of earth and are destined for eternal judgment or destruction. Now, these anti-pattern people live for the flesh. Now, the Judaizers, they had a preoccupation with the flesh. Let the reader understand. They put their confidence in their flesh from a standpoint of relying upon themselves, of relying upon what they do, of relying on their works. Their motto was essentially, do good, be good, be accepted. They live for externals. Their real God, Paul says, is their belly. What goes in? What comes out? The Gentiles, though, had a preoccupation. Those were the Judaizers. The Gentiles had a preoccupation with living for pleasure. Their motto was carpe diem, live for the moment, live for the day. They literally live for pleasure. That's what they do. 
Ever notice when you're talking to people about Jesus, people, people immediately in the world gravitate to all the restrictions that we have. They do that because to them, there can be no restrictions with appetite. You pursue what you want and you go after it. And to say that we do not do that is, people don't like that, right? Everything in the world centers around what they want. I mean, just watch television. Look, look at an ad. It's crying out loud. Everything. It's all about what you want. Hey, look like this, be like this, have this, do this, have this. It's just you're, every single day it's all about what you don't have and how you can be fulfilled by having more. That's a belly God, a stomach God. Whether you live for works in doing it yourself or whether you live for the next car or the house or your, whatever it is, those are belly gods. Satisfying what's your hunger, your appetites, your lusts, your desires. But Paul says something which is a little more mature, so I'm temp tempering my language a little bit for we have younger ones in the room. But Paul says they, they glory in their shame. These, the anti-pattern people glory in their shame. This probably means, basically, that they are focusing inappropriately on things that we should be ashamed of, right? In other words, these legalists and antinomians are taking pride in two things, right? That are actually embarrassing to talk about. Circumcision and sexual lust. Those are not things that you should talk about, right? And so these people, these Judaizers, are spending all their time talking about circumcision, it's not something you just like, say, hey, let's talk about circumcision today, right? They glory in their shame. Those are not things you talk about. They're glorying in it. They're like, oh, we're, oh, look at, we've got this mark. Oh, look at us. And Paul says, what are you doing? You're not glorying in Jesus. You're glorying in something you shouldn't even talk about. They focus on earthly things. They can't see past the present moment. They can't see into eternity. They can only see what satisfies them now. In other words, they cannot see the righteousness that Christ could provide for them. They can only see their righteousness, or they can only live for their lusts. They are caught up in this world, and they're caught up in everything in it. They are citizens of earth, not of heaven. So, the next thing that we want to do, though, is we want to avoid the anti-pattern, right? Which is, um, in following and pursuing Christ, we avoid the anti-pattern, but in verses 17, 20, and 21, we see that we should follow the pattern, right? If I just say, well, don't follow that pattern, that's not very helpful, is it? You're like, thanks, pastor, like, seriously, just told me what I shouldn't do. Well, what should you do? Well, here we go. Paul says, follow a different pattern. One that was revealed in Jesus Christ. The true citizen of heaven, right? Remember, when you think about the citizen of heaven, Jesus is actually the true citizen of heaven. Right? He lived in heaven eternally. We didn't. Right? We were born. We lived here. Our citizenship is in heaven because we've been brought into that. We've been granted that, but Jesus actually was the citizen from heaven. In fact, he was the Lord of heaven. He left heaven and came down to earth to redeem us from being caught up in the works of the law or caught up in the works of flesh. 
You see, he redeemed us from living for earthly things and ultimately things that lead to eternal destruction. So Paul tells us that we should follow his example or his pattern in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is saying here, listen, I've given you an example and I've ordained these elders and these others who are walking in Jesus. So follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow them as they're following Jesus because they're following and looking like me. So you need a pattern. You need to be around people who are showing you what it's like. If you surround yourself with people who, do, who live the anti-pattern, guess what? What's going to happen to you? You're going to become like the anti-pattern people. Okay, so... Paul says, join in my example, imitate me, imitate others who are straining forward to the prize. So what Paul's saying is, look, I've got Jesus in my eye, and I'm not taking him off. I'm running down the track. I'm not looking at the audience over here veering off, right? I'm looking straight at Jesus, and I actually want you to come single file line behind me and run after me. Follow me. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep them fixed upon Christ and the, the strain for the upward call of attaining the resurrection of dead, the righteousness of Christ. And so basically imitate others as well as imitate Christ, as they imitate Christ. In fact, if we want to produce fruit, you need to be planted in life-giving soil of the Holy Spirit who is living in us and in our community and allow ourselves to be fed off the nutrients of seeing and imitating others who are pursuing Christ just like Paul did. Listen, especially you younger people here. If you are looking to people who are examples that do not follow after Jesus, you will become people who do not follow after Jesus. You must surround yourself with friends who are pursuing Jesus. If you don't, young people, you will pursue the world. And you will waste your life pursuing things that will turn into dust. And will all go away. If you pursue Christ, you will have something that will never, ever be taken away from you. The shoes, they get taken away. Your hair, it'll fall out. Well, maybe. Mine did. Right? Your, your, your basketball game, you'll end up, you know, messing up your ankle when you're older. It, it just, you can't continue. It's the same thing forever. It just doesn't work. But Christ continues forever. So, we should follow the pattern that Paul shows us. He was so consumed by, he was so consumed with Christ that everything else in the world was good for nothing except to be flushed down the toilet. Paul says in another part of this letter, he says basically that all his achievements, all his desires, all his hopes, all his dreams are a waste and literally waste compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. He was a citizen of heaven. His heart was there. 
Paul wanted to go home and his entire life was set on those things that would keep him fixed on his home. In in Philippi, as Acts 16 reveals to us, Roman citizenship was rare. And it was prized, by the way, in Philippi. If you had a Roman citizen, you were something. It came with great benefits. And so they were proud in Philippi of their citizenship. But Paul reminds them of the reality that the church is part of a greater society and a greater culture, one that we should be far prouder of than any earthly citizenship that we have and any benefits that that can have give us. So as disciples of Christ, we must have our minds set on things above and not on things on the earth. We must delight in knowing one thing, that we are God's and that he is ours. We have the passport to God's country in our hearts. You know what the passport is? The Holy Spirit. You have the passport to heaven in your hearts if you have the Holy Spirit. And you are citizens of that heavenly country. And your passport can never be taken away from you in Christ Jesus. So we need to serve the Lord, serve the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. So we should follow the pattern of Paul as well who waits expectantly for one thing. What is that? To experience the reality of seeing Jesus face to face. To see Jesus in all of his glory and splendor. Brothers and sisters, I can't wait because I am conflicted, because I live a life that straddles the world and heaven. And as I do that, I know that inside of me is something that I just want rid of more than anything else, and that is the love of me. And I want that gone more than anything else. And when I look, when I see Jesus, when I get to look at his face, in that one instantaneous moment, when I see the face of Jesus, everything corrupt, everything wrong, everything that focuses on me will be gone, and I will love Jesus with everything that I've got eternally and forever, and I will have true joy because he is the only one that can bring joy because he's the creator, and he created me to find joy in him. And that is what I long for. And that is what Paul wants you to have. That is what Paul wants me to have. And that's what Paul says, will you pursue that with me? And I'm asking you, brothers and sisters today, will you pursue that face of Christ with me today? And leave behind and strain ahead for that prize. To see Jesus in all his glory and splendor. Jesus is our Savior, the one anointed to bring us salvation by God, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He should frame our entire existence. He is our end, our purpose. He's the one we serve. He's the one we take pride in. He's our glory. He's our focus, not our flesh, not its lusts. So, we should delight in becoming like Christ. We should follow the pattern of Paul by looking forward to one day being transformed from this temporary body to a glorified one. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will look Jesus in the face and be made like him. We will be transformed from this broken down, miserable, weak body into a glorious body that will be like Christ. It will be done by Christ. He will change you and done by his power. We should also follow the pattern of Paul as we see that Jesus Christ is all-powerful. He has subjected all things to himself. 
He is the ultimate king. He's the Lord of all. He made all things and will continue to, to, to cause all things to exist in him. And so we should be subjected to him in all things and seek to see all people subjected to him in loving service. We must follow Paul's pattern and live with a greater and greater submission to the empowering presence and the lordship of Jesus Christ and lead others to do the same. And so I'm going to do a conclusion and I'm going to talk about a rule of life. What is the bottom line here? What, what do I want you to come out with today? We must see the surpassing beauty of Christ and pattern our lives after Paul so that we are being drawn more and more into Christ and are led further and further away from the belly God. Get away from the belly God. It's no good. It only leaves you sick. It only leaves you wanting more. And you know what Tim Keller used to say? He, say? he would say that basically the problem with gods is they take. They just take. The belly God keeps demanding that you work harder. Right? Work harder. Make more. Earn more. Have more. Do more. Be more. And God is a giver of every good and perfect gift. God does not take from us. He only gives. We give him service, but he doesn't take that from us. He doesn't demand it. We give it because we love him, because he first loved us. Don't serve the belly, God. Avoid legalism and antinomianism. Avoid trying to earn your way to God and avoid saying, I don't care what God says. Those are two bad things. Don't do them. We must not live out the flesh to try and earn our way to God or to satisfy our cravings. We are frail. We are finite. We are sinful. We need Christ to start changing us. And so now we must be more conformed to his image and long for the ultimate change that will come when we see him face to face. What are we doing to follow a pattern in our lives? What are you doing to follow a pattern in your life that seeks to put Christ first? What is one thing that you can do? Well, honestly, you can craft what's called a rule of life. So what is this? I'm going to try to get real down and practical right now. What is a rule of life? It is essentially an intentional pattern of spiritual discipline that provides structure and direction for growth in Christ. Okay? It is an intentional pattern of spiritual discipline that provides structure and discipline so you can grow in Christ. Right? What does that mean in English? You have to intentionally try to live your life to get more in love with Christ. And you need to do things spiritually, like reading your Bible and praying, being with God's people, worship, in order to do that. If you don't do those things practically, you will not grow in Christ. You will not. And so that's what a rule of life is. It essentially establishes a rhythm for your life that helps to be formed by the Spirit. It is a rhythm that intentionally and consciously puts Christ in the center of all that we do. Think about the great Olympians. What do they do? Do they be like, oh, I think I'm going to practice today? Right? Like, oh, well, I, you know, I'll get that gold medal. I remember Michael Phelps when he got all those medals and, you know, he had them all. I mean, what did he do? He had a regimen, didn't he? He ate like... I don't know, his so many calories a day, it was ridiculous, 
right? And he, and he swam, and he swam, and he did all these different things, and he had a routine. And every great sports person, every great person that gets good at their craft, they have a routine, and they stick to their routine. If you try to live and walk your life without a routine, without establishing spiritual disciplines in your life, you will not grow in Christ the way that you should be. I, I'm just exhorting you right now. As your pastor who loves you, as your shepherd, you've got to do something in your life to not make this whole worshiping God thing some, like, well, I feel like it today, I don't. Because the devil's going to do everything he can to make sure that you don't. So you must be in the word, right? So these disciplines should be built into our life to basically help us put off the old man and put on the new man. So Christ can be formed in you. They are the consistent and diligent use of the means of grace that God gives so that you can be nourished. Basically, they're a pattern to follow. Essentially, we look at Christ, we look at Paul, we look at the scriptures, and we use their pattern to create our own pattern, one that works for you. You cannot do what Martin Luther did, who prayed like four or six hours a day. Like, it's probably not going to work for you, right? But you can pray every day, and set aside time every day. You, how many of you, well, maybe you shouldn't raise your hand, but how many of you would re will refuse to go to work or meet with people before you've brushed your teeth? Man, <laughs> never mind, we'll go somewhere else. How, how many of you would, 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 would go out in your pajamas to work? Not many, I assume. Well, a few of you might. You can think of another example. Okay, but having said that, you put on your clothes, right, and go to work. You wouldn't dare do that. Are you putting on Jesus every day? If you made it so you put on Jesus before you put on your clothes and considered him as more important than you going out in your pajamas then you would have a spiritual discipline that you could follow. That would be a rule of life. I will not get dressed until I spend time with Jesus. So rules should help us love God more. If, if it becomes legalistic, though, to earn merit with God and others, it's not working. If you don't like the traditional ancient term rule because it sounds legalistic, call it a rhythm of life. I don't care what you call it. Make your own rhythm of life if you don't like rule of life. But in order for this to bring spiritual life to us, it must be realistic. It is not some ideal. If you say, well, I'm going to pray for four hours a day, it's probably not going to happen. So don't make a realistic goal. You know, you've heard those smart goals, right? Got to be simple, right? Measurable, right? Attainable, realistic, and time-bound. You know, those type of things. Well, those type of things are good ways to do it. You've got to have real goals that you can attain to. Like, if you, if you haven't been praying at all or for a minute a day, set a goal for three minutes and then increase it as time goes on. Don't set a goal for 45 minutes. You'll never make it, right? You've got you to gotta do this. You've got to say, I, but I will do it every day no matter what. If you, ask, um, you, if you ask, there's a funny story in, in my life. You could ask my wife about it later about um, when I had a concussion and I was at the hospital and um, before I went to bed, I came home and went to bed I would not go to bed until I brushed my teeth. And she's like, go, you just had a concussion. You were in the hospital. Go to bed. And I'm like, no, I won't. That's a, that's a rule of life. It's a funny story. You should ask her. 
That's a rule of life for me, right? I will brush my teeth before I go to bed. So these, these, these things, we have, we have to prayerfully and scripturally evaluate, and we create a minimum thing for your life. It's like a minimum, right? Like, I will not do less than this. That's a rule of life. I will pray every day at least once, or something like that, right? It's a, it's a thing that you have to wrestle through. It's a realistic level of engaging the spiritual disciplines for which we would be willing to be held accountable. So let me sum this up. It should basically have five things. Relationship with God. I'm going to send out notes for this so you'll get them in email. Relationship with God, personal life and health, relationships, church, and work. Okay? Personal relationship with God should include scripture reading, prayer, silence and solitude, fasting, studying, reflection. Personal life and health should include sleep, rest, and Sabbath, physical health and fitness, recreation and hobbies, money and possessions. Relationships should include marriage, children, parenting, friendships, extended family, neighbors, and co-workers. Church should include participation in weekly corporate worship, friendships, and community, service and mission, generosity. Work should include calling, vocation, current position and responsibilities, workplace relationships, education, personal development, coaching. In each of these five areas, prayerfully find a key verse or passage that, we would, that we'd like to use to anchor us in these things and make several commitments to those areas. It might be helpful to think through these seven areas of fruitfulness, not productivity, but fruitfulness. Love, generosity, humility, gentleness, chastity, self-denial, and moderation. Use these to guide you to what spiritual practices that you should do. Don't look at my life. You have your own life. You need to decide for you what works, right? But most importantly in all this, be led by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. These practices are not done so that God will be impressed by you, okay? You can't impress God. Jesus can, but you can't, right? He's not going to give you anything for doing this except greater love and life in him, right? So you're not going to merit anything. If you did, that would be serving the stomach God, right? So we do these things because we believe these practices help us to see Jesus, Help us to love Jesus. Help us to worship him and follow him more. So, we walk in step with the Spirit and walk in step with the example that the Apostle Paul gave for us. And we make the promises when we do that that God gave us more believable. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Oh, Lord, we know that commitments and things are hard and we don't even want to make them because we're afraid we're going to fail them but we need to live our life in such a way that christ is put before us in all things help us oh god we pray to do these things and we pray this all in jesus name amen